Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, the Scott Harvath Podcast. How you doing this week, Mike? Chris, I'm doing great. We just came off an incredible interview with one of the most genuine people you could ever meet. Brad Thor, what a guy. I can't say enough. You know, going into this interview, I was already pretty hype about this novel. And I didn't know how I could come out of the interview being more hype about the novel, but I am. Yeah. He's an amazing guy. You guys, I, I can't wait for you to listen to this podcast because you're gonna you're gonna love it. He breaks it down. We go full spoiler. It's 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 just a great podcast. You know, it's yeah. it's it's a great interview. He's he's a great guy, great, great human being. You know, and I, I kinda said it a little bit on the interview, but I'm I'm happy he wrote this book. I'm happy he put his two cents on it. And I, you know, I'm not going to summarize what he said. I'll let let him say it when you listen to the to the book or to the interview. But yeah, no, I yeah, I'm at a loss for words. That's, that's how great this interview was. Same here. Same here. It, it almost could be our part two. It's like, do we even need to record a part two? We covered so much and <laughs> went in so much depth. No, we got it. We got to do the scorecard. But you know, absolutely right. We're definitely going to bring that to you guys. I'm going to be away on vacation for the next ten days or so, but. We're I was just you... on a 10-day vacation, so that's and why we haven't recorded that. part two. Uh, yeah, that's why part two is delayed. Before the end of August, though, we will have part two of Deadfall, including our final scorecard, out to you guys, the listeners. But speaking of our trips, Brad stayed on after talking to him for more than an hour till 10 p.m. at night, and he stayed on another five or six minutes to ask us about our lives. He wanted to hear about you going to Montana, bringing the kids to Yellowstone, he wanted to hear from me about my anniversary trip in the Azores next week. 10 o'clock at night, a New York Times best-selling author staying on to ask us about our families and our vacations. It's unbelievable. Yeah, can't, can't say enough. You, you can't say enough. Can't say enough. But equally as great are our listeners, you guys, and we want to celebrate you. So before we jump into this interview... We will be doing a giveaway, a Brad Thor autographed book giveaway. You will get a choice, the winner of Hidden Order, Act of War, or Code of Conduct, three Scott Harvath books we will be covering here on the podcast. So you get your pick of a signed book by Brad Thor, Hidden Order, Act of War, Code of Conduct. And there are three ways to enter the giveaway. Make sure you go ahead into the Apple Podcast app. Leave us a review with a comment. Make sure you include a username in that comment where we can uh, reach out to you. Or on X, formerly known as Twitter, you can go ahead and retweet or comment <laughs> on our post of this episode. And on Facebook, please comment and share in the No Limits group on our episode uh, highlighting this interview. So three ways, three interactions Three entries into a Brad Thor signed book giveaway, Apple Podcast review, retweet, re-X, re-X, retweet. I don't know what it, what is it called now. Twitter. It's called Twitter. And go on to Facebook, join the No Limits group, and make sure you share and comment on this post. Yeah. One more thing before we get to our interview. Just we should mention that you just you did the deed and you gave another hundred books to Operation Paperback. Thanks to you, listeners. So glad our patrons are supporting us financially, what we do here on the podcast, and all of the surplus money is going back towards Operation Paperback. I was able to get a hundred thriller books, various authors. I had everything. Kuntz, DeMille, all, Vince Flynn, Brett Thor, it was basically everybody. Clancy, Ludlam, from my in-law's church. They did a tag sale, I guess you, you can call it. And they had set aside any thriller books that were on my list of authors, uh, mystery, crime, all sorts of books. But um, I got 100 books uh, from them donated from this church that I was able to send to our troops and veterans. So nine care packages totaling 100 books, approximately 11 or 12 books each, went out to our troops and vets through Operation Paperback. And that brings our total of books donated from this podcast just under 1,400. 1,400 books. Wow, that's awesome. And just so you know, for the less than the price of a novel a month, you too can support this podcast and be the reason we can make more amazing podcasts like this interview. 
Just head to thrillerpod.com and click on the patron tab to learn more. And after that, here's our interview with Brad Thor. Today we welcome back a very special guest, author of this summer's blockbuster thriller, Deadfall. Welcome back to No Limits, the Scott Harvath podcast, Brad Thor. It's great to be back, you guys. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome. Well, let me just kick it off with the question everybody's been waiting to hear from you. Barbie or Oppenheimer? (laughs) I haven't seen either. I'm actually reading the Oppenheimer book, which is 721 pages. It's very long. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, the one that I'm going to break cover for is Mission Impossible. So as soon as that one is out and available, then I'll rush to the theater. I do want to see Oppenheimer, but I saw something, I saw an interview with, or read an interview with Christopher Nolan recently that said, yeah, maybe I went a little bit overboard on the sound. And it kind of like my wife and my youngest saw it in uh, IMAX. And uh, Nolan was saying, yeah, there is some mumbling in the movie and you can't, hear it and i'm like ah you know maybe i want to watch it on home at home on my own big screen when it streams you know in a month or whenever it right. is going to be released so yeah i haven't seen either of those movies uh i got a great theater i love the theater with the reclining seats and i can get a beer and take it with me into the theater and that kind of stuff and get wings or pizza uh but no i have not gone out and in fact i've been you know promoting my new book I, it right. came out so i've i've really been just kind of buried up covered up with media so <laughs> Good question. Sorry, I don't have a better answer for you than that. <laughs> no, no it's, worries. It was, it was just neither. a joke. Just a joke. All right. What, what, what about this one? Uh, in a cage match, who would win? Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, you know what? Uh, I hope it's Zuckerberg because I can't stand Elon <laughs> Musk. Uh, that I heard somebody once say that he puts the ass in Asperger's. Um, Uh, you know, I'd hate to be that guy's neighbor with the damn X on top of the building and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I I just, I'm kind of tired of hearing from him. There's a handful of those really wealthy guys that just pop off about everything. And yeah, I'd hate to be one of his shareholders. I'll I'll tell you that much. And he's really driven Twitter into the ground, which is a shame because I mean, it was never perfect, but I think he's made it worse. So I'm, I'm putting my money on Zuckerberg. Plus, have you seen what shape Zuckerberg's in? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. He's doing 4,000 calories a day to keep been his training. muscle mass up. Oh, it's amazing. He's going to yeah. whoop that jackass's ass. <laughs> so I'm looking forward That's to funny. that fight. I'd go to Vegas for that. There you go. That's yeah. great. You do a little promotion while you're there. Hand out copies sure. of Deadfall. That's it. Sign books in the lobby. The whole deal. Well, Deadfall, Brad, incredible book. You know, Chris yes. and I on this podcast, we nitpick everything we're going through right down to the cover you guys did an emergency episode (laughs) where you're like what the hell is with this cover i listened to it i've listened to the episodes yeah you guys went after the cover but it's now that you've read it you're gonna appreciate it to it i love the cover i i got goosebumps when the scene happened with the the wing of Mm -hmm. the archangel which we had guessed that that's which statue Mm -hmm. you were using well done and it was the troll looking out the window at the raven on the tip of the wing Mm -hmm. I had goosebumps because, again, any apprehensiveness I had about the cover, when that moment hit, it was just – I don't know why that warped me into the story. It was a small detail, but it had layers because the raven and the ravens, uh, the chaos, yet he's finding peace in this kind of visual looking out the window. You killed it, Brad. I, listen, I wanted to respond to you guys, and I'm like, no, I got to hold back because I just got to let them read the book, and then they'll get it, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Cool. Well, I like guess, it. you know, just to kick it off, like what, what inspired you to write, you know, a story about Ukraine? So I grew up, there was a particular writer who I loved growing up and his name was Alistair McLean. And uh, so one of my favorite books by him, and it was a great movie with a young Clint Eastwood is Where Eagles Dare. He wrote some really cool World War II stuff. He wrote some Cold War stuff like Ice Station Zebra. And, you know, I'd always loved his stuff. I love modern takes on World War II, like Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, Fury with Brad Pitt. Uh, you know, right down, I even enjoyed Tremendously Monuments Men with George Clooney right. and uh, and John Goodman. So I'd always wanted to take Harvath and put him in one of those kind of World War II stories. But minus, you know, Doc and the DeLorean, that wasn't going to happen because Harvath is today, not, you know, back in the 1930s, 1940s. So when Ukraine came about, I thought, okay, if this, if the Russians don't make it into 
uh, Kyiv in the initial push, if the Ukrainians are able to hold on to Kyiv, this thing could draw out for a while. And I might have some breathing room to set a book there and get it to market. So that was really the impetus behind it is that I wanted to put Harvath basically in a land war in Europe. And as I'm writing it, it looks to me like all those bombed out villages that you saw in Saving Private Ryan and uh, right. Band of Brothers and Fury. That was, I mean, I was, those movies were playing through my head as I was writing this book, the, the back, the, the backdrops, the settings, if you will. Yeah. Speaking of settings, something we always bring up about your books every time is how we're transported to the location. We call it our traveling heavy segment after your uh, former <laughs> life in, on the traveling yeah. light uh, series. The way you took us into a monastery, I felt like I was there in the countryside or a vineyard. And we're with the Vintner's family and unfortunately what happens to the children mm -hmm. or even the, the Bush telegram where we're, we're going village to village, getting these, yeah, these yeah. clues and these hints and they're communicating. It felt like guerrilla warfare mixed in with – and then there were some urban scenes it almost felt like in those little towns where they're hiding behind buildings and he sets mm -hmm. the trap with the armored convoy. Yep. What was your favorite location to write? And then similarly because it goes with that, your favorite action scene that you put in the book? Boy, that's great. Uh, great question. Uh, you know, it, it's funny because the first scene where you see Harvath, chapter one, so there's the prologue with Anna Royko in the orphanage where the, um, the ravens show up. And then I had actually gone to Harvath in Poland, kind of bopping around in Warsaw. And my wife's like, no, nah, you can't go to that. She's like, you need an action scene with Harvath to start it up. And so in my notes, I had this thing about what was in the real world going on in Belarus, which is the Iranians training the Russians and how to use their drones, the Shahid drones and all that kind of stuff. So that scene I put in after the fact, because my wife's like, yeah, you need an action scene right up front here. So that's why I did that with chapter one with Harvath and he got to see his team. And a couple of the guys on Harvath's team are based on guys I know, and they get all pissy if they don't see themselves in the book. You know what I mean? So I got to <laughs> I gotta take care of the boys and, and put them in. So, uh, you know, I really liked uh, there, but each scene was different. Each scene kind of scratched a different itch for me, if you will, uh, you know, played upon like Harvath goes all the way to Kiev, and then he's supposed to be he goes on to Kharkiv and he's supposed to be meeting with what he thinks is a Ukrainian intelligence officer and it's right. not it right. is it is actually a Russian that is swapped in and so that whole thing in the DACA and I you know I I when the guy jumps through the window on fire, on fire that was yes. yeah that was like my Jason like Friday the 13th kind of thing that you just think it's gone and the dude just jumps through the window out of the window outside so that was fun. I really liked having Harveth in the APC on the 50 cal and just right. raking, raking uh, the target with all those rounds. I, you know, it's it's interesting because Ukraine is the first. Uh, I, there was stuff in Afghanistan and stuff in um, Iraq where there were video and stuff like that. But that was that's like organized U.S. military. There's stuff that they don't want their guys doing. You know, they don't want guys feeding out live footage of combat sure. and all that kind of stuff. But Ukraine's a different story. So you see a lot of these Western guys that are joining the International Legion and their GoPros are running all the time. So for me as a writer, it was amazing how much stuff I got to see so that when I wanted to capture some firefights or some house to house stuff, I could actually look at video on YouTube. It was amazing and get inspiration and watch. And uh, there were a couple of things I saw where guys are like, it's here, we're, we're in the right place. They're looking at the grids on their map and they're like, yeah, this is exactly where we're supposed to be, but nothing's here. You know, so that kind of war is, you know, fog of war and things get screwed up and logistics and getting, you know, supplies around. So each one of those action scenes, I really, really enjoyed, um, you know, whether it was taking out the Ravens as they were coming by that convent. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the big scene at the end where, you know, it's kind of a bookend from the beginning with the Claymores. So you've yes. got the Claymores in the beginning in Belarus. You've got the Claymores at the end. Uh, each one right down to where the, the fake... Uh, the Russians posing as Ukrainian soldiers had like a roadblock and the had to let, yeah, the checkpoint. So all that stuff was fun to write because each one of those is something I could see happening in Band of Brothers. You know what I mean? Right. Each one of those scenarios. 
And it's funny because when I sat down, I was like, whoa, most of this happens over 24 hours for Harvath. Yeah, the book it is- happens. Yeah, I mean, it's a really long day for him from, you know, having his train attacked to, you know, ending up uh, figuring out uh, where Anna is and, and going in there and getting her out. It's like a, it's like almost like an episode of 24, you know, in, in a sense. And I felt honestly, we, when we were, we talked about the first half of the book already and I brought up this thing, I felt that it, you know, it, it read like Band of Brothers, it read like Saving Private Ryan. I, I could feel your inspiration in the book. And then also, you know, just putting Brad in this like new, I feel like these last three books, they, while they haven't been like super connected, like story-wise, like they've, they've been putting, um, not Brad, putting, I do that Scott. a lot, putting yeah. Scott in these different places and, and seeing how he can connect. And I don't know if you can comment on like what you've been jumping around and they kind of have, I don't know, Mike, Mike, you had a better way to describe this. They, they're kind of connected, but not in, you know, like a true, like one story and in the second story sense. Right. They're almost three separate stories, yet the geopolitical like landscape behind them is all interwoven. So there's this connective tissue that's not necessarily plot-based, but as the reader, you feel like it's definitely all the same universe. So when you pull Scott into one from the other, that makes sense. Or you pull the troll and what he's doing with the Carlton group and their intel, well, you're feeding off of things that came two, three books ago that are informing the situation now, how the Russians, the Chinese, or even that opening scene, how the IGRC Iranians are you know, getting mm-hmm. the drones and trading the drones – it all feels connected, yet the last three have felt like very different stories. They're separate missions, right? So he – and the books are designed – if you want to read from the beginning, which a lot of purists do, that's totally cool. If you haven't read one of my books before and you want to start with the latest one, Deadfall, you can do that too. That's that's the whole idea here. But I'm actually searching in the real world every year for what's the, what's the real geopolitical set piece that I'm going to actually – wrap my stuff around um you know so with rising tiger last summer's book uh that was based on a real attack by chinese soldiers who slipped over the border into china i'm sorry chinese soldiers slipped over the border into india and attacked all those indian soldiers in the middle of the night uh with homemade weapons like stuff out of walking dead and it lasted that hand-to-hand combat went on for six hours it was like something out of the, the middle ages so, and the year before that, with the whole Arctic thing, with Russia pushing in the Arctic and the Chinese trying to get a foothold there and all that stuff. So there's always a real geopolitical set piece that I'm I'm basing Harvest Mission around. So that's kind of the fun thing. You're going to get that white knuckle thrill ride. But when you close the book, you're going to actually know a little bit more about what's going on around the world just by virtue of having finished the book. I mean, these are not textbooks. This is entertainment. This is supposed to be fun. It's the faction, right? It's yeah, faction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Though you can learn so much. How many missions did you reference from World War II with Poland, from the Cold yep. War, different intelligence operations? It was prime Brad Thor. It was we call them Thorisms on the pod. Every Thorism here is firing, just full cylinder. We talked about the setting. Now we're talking about faction. We could even talk, you know, a very Thor thing is the humor and and how many jokes yeah. the guys are making in the team. Uh, Which is hard in a setting like this. I actually yes. think there are probably less jokes in Deadfall because there were less moments to have that graveyard humor. And I'm always looking for a way to slide those jokes in there. But I, I just because this was so serious and it was so intense, those moments are important to give people a chance to breathe, you know. But and it's obviously different last year with Rising Tiger and VJ helping Harvath navigate India, you know, whether it was Jaipur or uh, Delhi. Whatever you could, you could get those moments in there because it wasn't intense, middle of just horrific war crimes. But in Deadfall, it's a little bit different. So I had to pick and choose very carefully where it felt like, okay, one of the guys could rib the other guy, you know, and you could get a joke in there. And that, okay, that felt like, that felt like, yeah, that'd probably happen in real life. Carolyn and Fields, too. The FBI yeah. Oh, subplot. yeah, those two. Yeah, those two as well. Yeah, with the uh, gravity being the leading cause of death, <laughs> if you're a critic of the uh, Russian president. Absolutely. Was this one at all harder to write, picking the, you, you know, Ukraine as the, as the. Yeah, main? yeah, it, it was to actually do the research into what the war crimes were. And then I was trying to draw that parallel with the uh, that I talk about in the beginning, the Nazi uh, SS brigade that was recruited much the same way uh, that these guys in the real life Wagner group were recruited out of prisons and insane asylums and things like that. And the fact that Hitler set that 
unit loose on Warsaw and different parts of Poland. You know, I mean, they just hammered Poland from August of 1944 to October. And some of the worst war crimes committed outside a concentration camp were committed there in Poland by that brigade. I mean, these when I talk about that Nazi SS brigade taking a flamethrower to a field hospital and then machine gunning any survivors that ran out, that really happened. I mean, mm. sometimes truth is 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 much more disturbing than than fiction. So I, I really wanted to I like that line by Francis Fuki that history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme and there were so many there there are so many things in real life with Putin going in and taking a slice of uh, Ukraine in 2014 very similar to when Hitler first went in and took a slice of Czechoslovakia and then you had the Republic of France fascist Italy and the UK saying okay if we let him keep it maybe he'll stop there just like everybody did with Putin in Ukraine. Well, if we, you know, we kicked him out of the G8. That's why we have a G7 now. The Russians got tossed out. There were a few sanctions and a harshly worded letter. But, uh, you know, it's it's history happening all over again. These guys, they don't they don't react to that stuff. That doesn't deter them. So there, there's a lot of echoes of World War II and what's going on right now. Care to come to my history class and uh, teach the middle schoolers because they need <laughs> some of the that. Kids. I, you know what? I, I, it's really, it really is funny. I, you know, I one of my kids sent me a meme the other day, and they said, "When you hit middle age, if you're a dad, you have two choices: either you start smoking meats or you get into World War II history." <laughs> <laughs> why can't you do both? <laughs> uh, yeah, why not do both? Right? I, I think the real polymath is going to do both and more. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. Now, obviously, we know this book was written, you know, quite some time ago, but and. When the Wagner Group, when that whole situation was going down a couple of weeks ago, what, what what's your take on that? So I, I I guess you're probably talking about June 23rd when they yes. uh, sent 5,000 dudes, and rolled Prigozhin, them up towards yeah. Moscow. Yeah, Yevgeny yeah. Prigozhin, uh, you know, and they took out some, uh, they took out a kind of a surveillance airplane and some helicopters. They did some damage on the way up and then all of a sudden broke off. Um, so it, it's interesting. Since then, I have seen a video of Prigozhin shot against like the sunset. So you don't really get a good look at him. Deep there fake. was a st- yeah, deep fake still photo of him that could have been ages old with some African diplomat. And then there was an audio message on Telegram, on his Telegram channel. There's really not been a sit down, you know, confirmable is he still alive so i don't even know if pergosian the head of the wagner group is still alive um but when i was writing this i figured wagner was going to be around what i was worried about was all of these times the russians have gotten themselves into trouble around one of the ukrainian nuke plants and they're they're shelling too close they're cutting off power they're causing power to be disrupted which could cause a meltdown that was the big thing a i was worried about just as a human being you know sure. i don't want to i don't want another chernobyl over there but uh, from an author standpoint i was like okay if this happens that's going to be interesting because i'm not going to be able to work that into the book you know they the russians blew up that dam and that killed 55 people i'm an animal lover and that thing wiped out an entire zoo and killed all the animals in the zoo. I mean, these guys are just barbarians. They're savages. Um, So I lucked out. I lucked out. It's the first time I've ever written something kind of concurrent with real events, uh, running real time with my writing and stuff like that. But it it didn't work. And I, you know, listen, I want to create a book that you could pick up 10 years from now and still have that really cool Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan kind of experience. It's real interesting you you talk about that because I remember a few weeks back because we're getting ready to cover Code Red. We also have the Mitch Rap podcast. The last Kyle Mills. Right. Yeah. Last one, the transition. We have to cover all that. But I saw a tweet by Kyle that he was making some last minute edits based on what was going on with the Wagner Group and Prigozhin. And I think your your setting is a little easier because you've already set up Peshkov, so you don't have to have a Putin. You know, he's been right. around. Right. And you have the Ravens as this kind of split group. This is right. wing exactly. of who left. They've Wagner. gone AWOL. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're just roaming around, just marauding through. They're not even part of Wagner anymore. They're not taking any direction from Wagner. So, yeah, these are very bad lone gunslingers. In some ways, that maybe makes it easier for the book to age and and for you mm-hmm. to write it, and but it also gave you that creativity to kind of do some crazy stuff. This is a heavy, heavy book in terms of psyche and and, and psychology. Some of the things that you have to describe with the nuns and the nunnery yeah. and the yeah. children being taken and the father who was disabled and what happened to them. Yeah, 
A lot Holy of that cow. happened in World War II. You yeah, know, it's right. funny. I didn't have to cast about for creative inspiration. It was, what do I leave out? Right. You know, what do I not put in? I mean, there were there were some things where I was like, yeah, I'm not going that far. But they, I, this this stuff, what what can happen in war with bad actors who don't, you know, it, who don't uh, subscribe to the Geneva and Hague Conventions and target, actually intentionally target civilians. Uh, it's it's terrible and that's been happening since the very beginning in uh in ukraine just it's it's horrific what the russians have done there yeah so i guess transitioning a little bit to you know some of the new characters that you brought to us um you mentioned earlier that you always have to get you know your some of your guys you, you write about but we also have like a new team and uh you know this team that this band of americans and and British over there helping. Uh, can you speak a little bit about Hookah, Jax, Kruger, and Biscuit and what, what inspired you to write about them? Yeah. So I read a lot of articles and watched videos of people who were interviewed who had joined Ukraine's International Legion. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, so in real life in the United States, we've been we've been hacked. Some of our most sensitive databases when it comes to special operations personnel, intelligence personnel have been hacked by the Chinese. So there's stuff that you wouldn't think is that big of a deal. But uh, so the Office of Personnel Management, which is where the SF-86s are filed, which are these forms that it's how you get your top secret clearance. Uh, you've had major insurance companies hacked. IRS has been hacked. So anyway, once you've hacked these places and you pulled the data out of all these spots, you can start connecting dots. And so that was that was a little bit of the explanation, as you saw in Deadfall. Uh, one of the reasons why Harvath couldn't take any of his team members over there because the Chinese would be able to, you know, figure out these guys are all connected. They'd leak it to the Russians, and then the Russians would claim that the United States had put American boots on the ground, combat troops that they'd put them in there. So Harvath couldn't have any of his guys. I, that was important to me. You can't have your guys. And so I reversed engineered how we get in this situation and how do you fix it? And it's like the Ukrainians are like, we can't afford to spare anybody. We'll give you a handful of guys from the International Legion. They've got combat experience over here. They all speak English and good luck. You know, and it's the running joke in the book. Can I get some javelins? Yeah. You know, that was like the running yeah. thing. How yeah. come I can't yeah. get any javelins? Nobody's got any javelins. Um, so I, I, I really wanted to create... Not necessarily a dirty dozen, which was another great book that got turned into a movie. It has uh, that know. feel. Yeah. So these does. are guys that aren't necessarily getting sprung from prison to help Harvath. That's more the, you know, the the Wagner side of things where they have prisoners. But it is kind of this ragtag. I hate that term, but it is this mismatched group. They kind of know each other from combat. They haven't been fighting together long. And now Harvath drops in. They make Harvath a captain. And these guys have got to answer to him. You know, there's a whole thing. Harvest shows up. He's like, okay, where's all the gear and equipment? They're like, what gear and equipment? You <laughs> yeah. know, and so it's just constant one thing after another, which is very, very common uh, in a in a theater of war that, you know, this snafu, situation normal, all fucked up. Pardon <laughs> my French. We're going to get the explicit rating right out of the <laughs> Carolyn gates. wouldn't be happy. Carolyn wouldn't no. be happy with your language. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I got I got interviewed by, uh, by a journalist who's ex-FBI. And he said, man, he goes... And he's in his, I'd say John is probably in his fifties. And he's like, you know, that Carolyn guy, he's like, I knew that guy. I knew, <laughs> I knew that guy in multiple forms, you know, that were really kind of almost, you know, too young to have been there when Hoover was there, but still were very, you know, buttoned down, straight lace, no swearing, that kind of a thing. The old guard. So yeah, old guard. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, dropping Harveth in here. I was wondering, why is he here and why is he going solo across the countryside, essentially? And I was wondering, even before the book came out, how were you going to give me a reason to buy that he was sent there and he was just tracking down a group in the countryside, essentially by himself until he meets his team? But I bought it hook, line, and sinker when right. you had right. the OPM hack and how he can't bring his own team because then it would look like the U.S. military authorized it. And even Nicholas explaining this gave me more of the reason to buy in because basically when Nicholas breaks down the data, when he analyzes something, there's no holes. It's watertight. And so you you had me hook, line and sinker. But I want to talk about Nicholas for a second. Sure. He was a really, really – he played an important role. And I like to see while Scott's on the op and he's in, in the field, Nicholas is doing what Nicholas does, helping the GUR and doing the intel. Did you know from the beginning – that Yulia was going to be the mole. I didn't. You didn't. That's a okay. good question. I did not. I knew that that person was going to have to exist. So I had had some ideas. 
one of the things that I wanted Nicholas to do. So the the a couple of the intelligence operations that Nicholas get get discussed in his chapters are real operations that the Ukrainians did. So whether it was convincing the wives of the uh, pinup calendar that was real, pinup calendar totally oh, wow. real. Wow, totally real. What about the, the airplanes? Ukrainians convinced the the, the, the wives of those uh, kind of high ranking Russians to pose in boudoir photos. So that was real. The um, uh, sweetening the pot with lots of money to get uh, Russian pilots to uh, give up their aircraft. That was real. So I tried to, I, I figured these intelligence operations are so cool and they they exist. Why would you make something up? Just right. just have it be Nicholas's idea that he's running these types of things uh, with the Ukrainians. So that was, that was kind of fun. Did you know about Gretschko? Because that is almost the bigger cliffhanger. One of the Thorisms is always that cliffhanger that keeps mm-hmm. you going to the next chapter, the next book. Did you know that Kretschko, did you plan on having him defect and having Salvi meet him? Because you talked about bookends. I was like, where is Salvi in the beginning with Poland right. and they don't meet up? But then it was a sweet ending. They are going to meet up again. But now she, her, her world is colliding with Harvath's world, even though neither of them know it. Yeah. What's going on there? <laughs> so I've watched some interesting things politically, and I'm not going to go political here, but I, I've seen some politicians spend time with people who are just abject morons who get a politician's ear because they've got too much money, whatever, just because you're successful in, you know, uh, what's the John Candy character from, uh, he was the shower, shower curtain ring salesman, you know, just because you've made a fortune selling shower curtain rings doesn't mean you should be telling a politician how to pass laws or to form domestic or international policy. So when that jackass was telling Peshkov, here's what you ought to do and oh, blah, yeah. blah, 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 because that whole thing about the Black Sea, about Turkey controlling uh, entrance and exit from it is is totally legit. It is totally right. true. Um, I was like, OK, this has got there have got to be like decent Russia. Russia's full of wonderful people, just like I'm convinced China's full of wonderful people. They just are two countries that have horrific governments that just have just feathered their nests on the backs of the of the poor people that live in that in those countries. So I figured my guy in Russia was going to be like, you know what? I I just this is stupid. I can't believe I work for these idiots. I'm out. You know, I'm out. I'm in love with this woman. I should have really taken taken the chance with her. She's now in the south of France and I can't believe I bumped into her again. You know that happens a lot in life. You kind of you stop and you look back and say, "What if I just done this? Or what if I'd done that?" And oh my gosh, I got a second chance at life. Uh, I don't know. It's pretty scary. I have to risk everything to grab it, but I think I am going to grab it sort of a thing. So when he bumps into her and they reconnect and he's looking at the idiots he works for and how badly Russia's suffering because of the acts of the president of the country in my fictional world, he's like, you know what? F this guy. Why Why do I want to give my life? You know, this is not the country that I signed up to, to, to be a champion for. And so he decides to pull the plug. And I thought, oh, there's a really cool way to do this. And then it brings Solvi back at the end and he'll go to the Russia, he'll go to the Norwegians. And so, yeah, it did allow me to bookend it and bring Solvi back and give her a little thing. And that grocery store where they do that, that place really exists. And it's just kind of really neat. So that was fun to do. And that is that connective tissue right. because the Norway Russia border was huge in black ice. So yes. that's coming back into play. The mm-hmm. Black Sea stuff with Turkey controlling the Dardanelles and everything made me think of Rising Tiger with the Belt and Road Initiative and mm-hmm. how China maybe has less influence in that region if players like Turkey are propped up and if they're on the right side. So it's little scenes like that that make me feel these books are working together, as we said before, even though they're they're plot-wise very different. So cool. thanks for, for sharing that. You're welcome. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the title. We're, I don't know if I – I like the title – it's cool, but what what were you going for with Deadfall? So I'm 23 books in. It is tough to get titles. Okay. I know guys that like copy. Uh, I I know of authors. Let me say, ask Chad Chat GPT. What's that? Ask Chat yeah, GPT. I, I, you know what? I've tried Chat GPT. I've goofed around on it. It is the most unhelpful, uninspired, <laughs> robotic. I I am not worried about Chat GPT taking my job because the stuff it turns out is just crap. I've asked it just for fun. I've been like, because all my friends who are not writers are like, every oh Chat GPT is that good for you? And I'm like, you know, I've asked it to spit out a plot for a novel and stuff for a spy novel, counterterrorism novel, and it's so tropey. It's mm. so not even mid-listy. It's below mid-list. It's 
oh, it's just terrible. It's like so there's no novels. spark. Yeah, there's just there's no ingenuity, there's no passion, there's no life or creativity in ChatGPT, and it it, it gets reflected reflected in in what it spits back out. Uh, but the title, so it's interesting. So I'm 23 books in, and titles are tough. I know people that kind of uh, that uh, th- there's a handful of writers out there that copy Ludlum style, like the doorknob conspiracy or the light fixture escapade, you know? And it's like, come on, that stuff is just a little, I I just, that that stuff I just, I don't like. I think it is, to me, it smacks of Ludlum, but maybe with enough time passed since Ludlum was around, maybe that's okay. I mean, it's one thing for the Ludlum estate to do it on their books. It's it's another thing for other people to kind of do that stuff. But titles are hard. Uh, You can't copyright a title. You know, so I mean, I I did one title once, and some guy who was a director of some horror movies like you stole my title. I'm like, fuck you! Did yeah. I, a I've never heard of your stupid horror movie. So did and 15 B, other people. Yeah, I mean, and listen, the guy's horror movie might be totally righteous. I shouldn't say it's stupid. I never saw his horror movie, but to just pop up and accuse me of stealing, I was like, easy there, trigger. That's a that's kind of a that's kind of a a, a bold assertion. So anyway, it, it's tough to find titles. So what I did was is actually Deadfall came because I did a little. I was like Rising Tiger, Rising Tiger, and I was trying. I was thinking about Rising Tiger and what would be good to follow it, and uh. When my wife and my youngest were doing college visits, they went to Falling Water, which was the Frank Lloyd Wright Wright house. And so I was like, oh, and then I kind of just did a dumb joke in my head. I'm a rising tiger followed by Falling Water. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's not going to be Falling Water, but could it be Fall something? So you got Rising Tiger and could it be something else Fall? So Mm, I started playing around with words where I could combine Fall. And I was particularly looking for something that stacked really well. So four letters on top of four letters, the same way my name is four letters on top of four letters and I got to deadfall. And so deadfall is, you know, it's, it can be a trap. It can be a deadfall trap. It can be a tree that falls. So I was like, I really like this. And I pitched my editor on it and she, she loved it. She thought it was fantastic. Uh, And so that's, that's how that came about. And that's often it's, it's weeks of me just, it did not happen that quick. It's, but it's weeks of me just writing words down and trying to put things together in a cool way without trying to sound like you're trying to be cool. You know what I mean? Like overdoing it. Um, now, is this so, after writing? Like you're you're already like halfway no, through the book? No, no. It's I'll tell you that's kind of the that's kind of the difficult part of our business. You know, you, me, we all go to the store. We're like, whoa, Christmas is like it's August. I'm seeing the Halloween candy out already. And, you know, it's just a couple of weeks before they'll put out the Christmas stuff. They got a market. And so it, that's the way it is. Like they want to know what's the title and what's the story for the next book before you're even done with it. So that's part of just the kind of how the sausage is made sort of a thing. So I, I often, once I've got the idea for the book, the publisher wants the title as soon as possible. They want to know what the book's about, and then they want the title so that they can get to work on a cover. And I will work with the art director right out of the gate. We'll do a uh, we'll do a Zoom and we'll collaborate with me in Nashville and, and him in New York, and we'll talk about like we went through a lot of iterations for Deadfall, um, different things that I wanted to capture. You know, we started out by can we do like a whole like crumbled village with trees that have been desiccated and all this kind of stuff, and um, and that wasn't really capturing the feel. And he's like, well, let me see if I can go back and take some of the stuff you've told me that's in the book, and let's see if we can do something that's a little bit more high concept. Uh, and, and that's how we came up with the wing with the Raven on it, uh, which again, might not make sense. It probably doesn't make sense to most people. You guys were actually pretty smart when you did your, your emergency podcast episode and you had dug into it and you figured out the art and all that kind of stuff. So that was, that was actually the altarpiece. I remember reading on that episode, an article about the altarpiece hidden in a basement and split up and, and there it was. That's exactly. So I was, we probably, you, you guys probably found similar articles to what I was using as research Mm. uh, because there's all this UNESCO stuff out there. There's uh, listen, one of my favorite books is all the light uh, we cannot see. And it was a Pulitzer prize winner and all about the blind girl whose dad uh, worked at the Louvre in Paris. And they were trying to pack up the Louvre before the Nazis got there. And again, monuments men with George Clooney and John Goodman about trying to recover the art, Uh, even down to Indiana Jones. I mean, it was funny. I just saw the dial of destiny 
several weeks ago and it opens up with Indiana Jones at this like Nazi castle and the Nazi castle, they're like loading up all the art that they had looted. So that's a very big thing. And that's part of genocide. It's part. And so it is something that in the real world, Putin is actively doing is trying to steal the art out of Ukraine because that's a cultural genocide. Culture. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah, and it, it erases their culture. Same thing with stealing the kids and saying, oh, we're just trying to help them. It's not, it's bullshit. They're trying to, That's they are pulling the kids out. They are going to raise them as Russians and make them forget that they were ever Ukrainians. Right. So this- Like I mean, Crimea. This, yeah, yeah, it's bad stuff. There's so many people who just are accepting that that's Russian territory without even knowing- pre 2014, you know, what, what it was like. Well, and as I said in the book, and I think I, I hope this is uh, something that people, you know, one of the nicest compliments I get is people say, ah, oh, man, there's such cool stuff in here. I have to read your books with my laptop open because <laughs> yeah. I got to Google and see if that's true. One of the I'm, things I'm is I'm constantly been, doing that. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, we that's did that with the Viagra in that emergency pod. We had to look up if that was true. And it was. And that happened. And a that UN happened. mission. Yeah. Somebody brought it up at a meeting that that yep. was happening. Yeah. Yep. So one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know that I've, you guys have read the book now, so you know this, uh, and I've talked about it in my interviews, is that in the real world, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, a third of their their nukes were in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And it, we, as America, went to the Ukrainians and said, you guys don't know how to maintain this stuff, and you certainly can't keep it safe. And it was in our best interest to convince the Ukrainians to give up all these nukes, because we didn't want some terrorist group or rogue state to grab these nukes and use them against us, like one off in Madison or Minneapolis or St. Petersburg, Florida or Austin, Texas, doesn't matter where. It, it was in our best interest to convince the Ukrainians to give up the nukes. And the Ukrainians said, okay, we'll give them up, but we want some security assurances. And we said, yes, we totally guarantee you will never be invaded. You'll never lose an inch of sovereign territory. And they said, okay, now get the Russians to sign it. Okay, the Russians signed it. That's fine. That was before Putin and everything. But then fast forward to 2014 and the Russians invade and they take the Donbass, eastern eastern Ukraine. And all that happens is the Russians get kicked out of the G8, like we talked about earlier, becomes the G7. So a handful of sanctions and a harshly worded letter from the then uh, U.S. Uh, administration, presidential administration. Uh, you know, listen, I, I, I'm the son of a United States Marine. I was raised that character uh, matters, that your word matters in that America honors its promises. Uh, so the fact that we didn't uh, is, a, is a big deal. And I hear a lot about, oh, Ukraine's so corrupt. Yeah, Ukraine is very corrupt. Ukraine still has a hangover from being a member of the Soviet Union. Right. You know what else is corrupt? Chicago. I'm from <laughs> Chicago. Chicago is corrupt as hell, but I don't want the Canadians to come down and steal it. Okay. And you know what's even more corrupt than Ukraine? The swamp. Russia. Russia's even more corrupt than Ukraine. Yeah, I love all these yeah. people that point to Ukraine and they're like, it's right. so corrupt. I don't care if it's corrupt. That doesn't mean that you can go in and invade it and take it over and steal their children and rape their citizens. I mean, the men and the women are getting raped over there. It's yeah. horrible. I mean, I, you know, if anything, I dialed it down in my book. The stuff that I read is just, it's horrific. They're going to have a thing like Nuremberg that is just going to go on forever. I mean, they are, it's going to take them decades to go through all the war crimes that have been committed there. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because Chris and I were, were talking when we reviewed part one and not that we were surprised because you've been very clear on your, your personal perspective. We've been clear with Scott and Nicholas and their perspective on the war. So both in fiction and reality, very clear. But I was a bit surprised in the book how – I guess I'll put it this way. When when you, when you the troll mentions that originally it was 12% of Americans who either disagreed with the war or were against funding oh, and yeah, American yeah, supplies going. It. And then yeah. it quickly doubled and now it's 24%. I would say since you wrote this book before, you know, when it was in the can, even before publication, that number has probably doubled again or tripled. Like we have a sizable portion of this country who is seriously questioning and bringing up the corruption piece, but questioning, could this be another, you know, uh, we're giving weapons to who will become the Taliban, you know, originally supporting the freedom fighters. Uh, We're giving weapons to a various group that eventually who knows where they'll be and whose hands they'll be in. Are you open to the argument of people who disagree with the funding and military surplus going to Ukraine? Or like you said with Hugh Hewitt, do you still believe – that was a great interview. Do you still believe let's take everything we're giving him and double it on the And spot? double it. 
Yeah, listen, we predicate so much, we base so much of our Defense Department budget on going to war with Russia. This has been an unbelievably eye-opening experience for the United States military, for the Pentagon. We now realize Russia is so hollowed out because it's a kleptocracy, and their military is so hollowed out, that we don't need to fear them the way we once did. It is going to change our budgeting so that we can place the attention on China, which is a near peer power, which is a lot more threatening to us. We are falling behind in how many surface ships we have for our Navy, all this kind of stuff. So the Aleutian Islands, they just mm -hmm. went right next to the Aleutian with Islands the two days ago. Yeah, with the Russians. With the Russians, yeah. They and just, we sent they... one Coast Guard ship or something like that the first time and – yeah. yeah, so they backed off when we, you know, right. when we when we told them. Uh, so, it's I, on top of the Russian military getting hollowed out in Ukraine, which I think is great. And I'm going to get back. To, I'm going to contradict myself at the end of this because there's a moral argument that takes precedence all, over all of this. We are learning so much about our weapon systems. We have fielded stuff in Ukraine that has not seen active combat, and we're right. learning a ton about how it works. And in fact, there's a French defense manufacturer that makes a shoulder-fired rocket that had said, yeah, we're retiring this. They retired it. They retired it. They're like, this is never going to be used in modern combat again. And they went, oh, my God, we're bringing it back. We're firing the conveyor belts and the plants up. We're bringing this particular shoulder fire rocket back. So we are gathering incredible real-time intel on our weapon systems. The Russian military is, be, is just losing again and again and again. Now, that's that. The, 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 the flip side of that is the moral side, okay? There are Russian kids who are losing their dads. There are Russian mothers who are losing their sons. There are Russian wives losing their husbands. And the same thing can be said on the Ukrainian side. Uh, from a moral standpoint, we should all, and I am one of those people who does, should want to see this conflict ended as quickly as possible. That is the correct and moral position to have on this. So in my estimation, back to now Hugh Hewitt and your question about my talk with Hugh, is if you believe that the morally right thing to do is to end this as quickly as possible, we should be giving the Ukrainians everything they need to kick the shit out of the Russians. Because that's the only way that Putin is going to stop is if he has no choice and he's threatened. All, and that's but now back to Prigozhin and Wagner going up towards Moscow. I think Prigozhin probably thought he had a lot more people on the inside at the Kremlin who were going to back him in a coup attempt. And then it, they were like, yeah, on second thought. Yeah, sorry, bro. We told you we were going to we're going to back you. But nah, no, OK, no, we're out. So I think it's in I think it's in the world's best interest to curb, you know, this is again what we didn't do with Hitler. And we saw right. where that led after he took Czechoslovakia. And so I, I think there's a there's a real solid case here to be made for um for trying to end this in favor of Ukraine as quickly as possible. And that's why I come back to people, oh, it's so corrupt. Yeah, again, it's corrupt. I get it. Russia's more corrupt. And Ukraine has been inching towards being less corrupt. I know people that were over there teaching them how to improve their justice system, how to run proper elections, and how to improve their rule of law. It's not – it's baby steps. But what's great is, is if Ukraine – can pull this out. It is such a message to other countries around the world. There's a reason that the Chinese hate the Taiwanese. No autocrat wants a freedom-loving democracy on their doorstep. They just don't. It's one of the reasons China doesn't like India. It's a threat to, to you if you're a dictator or an autocrat. Very Clears well it up. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. I, I appreciate you saying this in your book. Like I felt like it it needed to be said. And yeah, that's one of the reasons why I really, I really enjoy this novel. Well, so. And you know, the other side of this is too, is the Chinese would love to see us drag it out over there yes. and deplete our yes. stockpiles. I yes. mean, deplete so our enemy, China, would like us and the Russians to be dragging it out. It's just, it's not good. We should not want to see any more people dying, Russian or Ukrainian. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you know what? this argument, oh, they're corrupt, is, I'm sorry, it's one of the, I, I just, so they deserve to be invaded? So again, like Chicago, Canada can come down, let them try and, let the Canadians try and take Chicago. <laughs> I'd like to see that. But it's like, you know what? No, this is a sovereign nation. And you guys read in the book where I talk about Putin wasn't so freaked out about Scandinavia that he doubled his troop strength up there with their NATO membership and inching closer Why not to NATO. Finland? 
It's bullshit. Yeah. The Nazis, the, the whole thing. Yeah, okay. And their Jewish president's a secret Nazi. That stuff is just garbage. Putin <laughs> wants to stitch together the old Russian empire. This is his legacy. This is why dictators, autocrats are so dangerous because mm. they are not answerable to the people they're right. supposed to be serving. So when Putin gets this idea that he wants to you know, get the band fully back together, there is a phrase that is used... Uh, that you can never reunite the Russian empire without Ukraine as part of its beating heart. So right. there's a, I'm butchering the phrase, but there is this phrase, there's this real belief that nothing else Putin would do would matter if he can't get Ukraine. It's so highly symbolic. So, but they're a free and independent nation. They are, they should be allowed to remain such. And here's the other thing. We promised them we would never let them lose an inch of territory. Right. We need to live up to our word. That's right. who we are as Americans. And you cannot like Zelensky. You cannot like all the stuff going on, blah, 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 blah. But we promise these guys and we need to live up to our promises. And if we don't, then you know what? Nobody's ever going to trust us on anything. And that's bad for the country, no matter where you stand on the issue. And I'll climb off my soapbox. Now. The only thing to say to that is Slava Ukraini. There you go. Royal Slava. Go. That's all we could say to that. I like to that rant. You know, just while we're on it, and, and a final theories. thing to close with, we got to ask you about some conspiracy theories here. Okay. Because you got the Commodore Yacht Club, which clearly, yeah. in my mind, living in D.C., goes to Pizzagate. Yes. Uh, you I live got a block it. away, or excuse me, I work a block away from the pizza restaurant, and as a middle schooler, almost I didn't all know our that. families, yeah, almost I didn't all the know families that. go to Comet Ping Pong. And here's the oh funny thing, gosh. right? You know how, like the Commodore Yacht Club, there's a strain of truth to something, and it's that strain that gets manipulated. Yeah. There is a back room, and it's kind of weird if you don't know the restaurant. It's uh -huh. hidden by a curtain because the bar scene is very loud, but it's also a family establishment in a residential neighborhood. There's a curtain. You pull the curtain over. You go down steps. It's almost like it feels like a warehouse kind of basement, but they have ping pong tables. So all the kids hang out down there as the parents are at the bar, but it's totally normal. And there's a couple right. of dads playing ping pong with the kids. But yeah. there is this like element when Pizzagate came out and a dude showed up with a gun there and it was yeah, it some of the families around. in my school who were affected by that. Ooh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it was tough, but I'm like, holy shit, I could see where these people take a strange thing, which is a, a dark basement with ping pong tables with kids playing. And, and it's just like, they run with this idea. I'm like, no, that's a normal restaurant. I go there, my, my kids, my students go there. Wow. You know, Yet this thing happens and a shooter comes in. I'm like, these conspiracy nuts, they got to go. But um, give us a good one. What is a conspiracy that it tickles your <laughs> fancy that not that you believe in, but that you like well, reading up on? Well, it's funny. So because, you know, Comet Ping Pong so well, that's why I did the Com uh, Commodore Yacht Club built on uh, pilings, because the idea that they have a basement when they're built over water is nonsense right. yet in my book that conspiracy so it's a it's a total knock on how dumb that conspiracy is about comet ping pong and that stuff is dangerous and this is where enemies of the united states are pushing on different cracks in uh in our culture here in the united states they are trying to divide us they want us angry at each other and about all these crazy things, because if they keep us pissed off, they can keep us from uniting and actually achieving stuff as fellow countrymen and women. So I, I see social media and conspiracy theories as really, really dangerous. Um, you know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I'm a guy that you got to you got to show me proof. You know, I'm going to do I, I, I'm going to look at it. Uh, so I can't think of anything because if I tell you it's a conspiracy theory, then I know it's not true. You know, I could <laughs> I could sit down here and rattle off some of the dumbest things like JFK Jr.'s coming back and, you know, that uh, the, these people are going to be locked up in Gitmo and their doubles are allowed to walk around. I mean, it's just nonsense. And I feel sorry for people that that kind of allow themselves to that their lives are so uninspiring that they <laughs> that this is their entertainment. Right. They get sucked into this because they need to be uh, the hero of some sort of a story. And if it's not, if their life isn't exciting enough, that's how they get down the QAnon rabbit hole and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's bonkers as far as I'm concerned. So, so I'm sorry, the UFO I can't sightings give you a, are true. What's that? <laughs> the UFO sightings are real. The ones yeah, at the, yeah, the biologics and all that kind of stuff. You know, wow, what a circus. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's kooky. I mean, I won't say they're, that we're the only life form in the universe. I mean, that would be pretty arrogant to, to assume that there's no life anywhere else. Uh, so uh, who knows? I've never seen anything. Uh, I've never seen any UFOs, so I, I can't speak directly to it. So 
But that was a good line in Independence Day with Will Smith when they had all that gear and all that stuff. And he's like, do you really think we spend $400 on toilet seats? It's actually a cover for how we built Area 51 and get all the money to do what we're doing here. That was a great, it was a great line. That's an awesome movie too. Yeah. Well, I, um, how's the book tour been going for you? This is, it's almost been over. Busy. It's been good. Yeah. It's been a straight media tour this year. Next year, I'll be going out and doing signings and that kind of a thing. So it's been it's been awesome. It's been great to get out. And uh, I did a bunch of media in New York last week, including the Today Show. And they're always so generous, you know, to have me on and uh, allow me to, you know, talk about my book in the midst of recommending, you know, four or five great summer reads and that kind of a thing. So it's been it's been good. It's a you know, it's it's the fun part of the job. This is what I look forward to. The book's done. I can't change it. It's put to bed. It's out there. And so this is this is really the fun part to talk about it and talk with readers and in media folks and bloggers and podcasters and things like that and just kind of dig in and what'd you like about the process? How did it go? How's this one compare to others? And you know, it's kind of funny. I, I never look backwards. And so it's opportunities like this to say, oh my gosh, wow, 23 books. This one debuted at number three on the hardcover list of the New York Times, number two on the combined list, hardcover and E, which is a which is a big deal. We are up against speaking of aliens, we are up against a book about uh saving Mars from being attacked, and then another one about dragon riders. So it was a big year for sci-fi and fantasy. So we were in a pretty supercharged horse race uh, for the spot. But think about it, 23 books in and to hit at number three with your hardcover to be at this, pardon me, for more than two decades, I am incredibly blessed. And where I am most blessed is that I have the best readers in the world because I love the folks at my publishing house. They're awesome. I dedicated the book to my publicist, David Brown, who's awesome. But at the end of the day, I work for the readers. They are my employers and they keep putting me back on the New York Times list uh, every single year. And they leave, you know, when they leave those five stars, that's my annual performance review. And I want my employers to be happy. I want to earn those, uh, those reviews. And I, and I work hard to do that every year. Well, you mentioned, uh, so next year we should hope to see you on doing the East coast, maybe doing some book signings. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm going to do, it'll be a big, big tour next summer. So yeah, we'll have a, we'll have a good time. We'll, we'll hit a bunch of hot spots, hit a bunch of places that we've always gone to. We'll hit some new spots. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't take a lot to get me out to the East coast in the summertime. I mean, I love it. We're hoping to see you in the swamp here in DC. I got a lot of friends that would like me to come back. So that's always, that's always fun. You know, in what, when I come to DC, it it becomes, you know, how much time do I have and how many people can I see, Mm. you know, because uh, probably what would be cool if my friends were regular folks, I could just rent out like a, like a, you know, a back room at some tavern, right? And bring everybody in. But the nature of the people that I want to see, right. you know, it's like, I want to sit this guy down and go, okay, wait, you were over in Iraq recently. Tell me about that. Or mm. you were in Beijing. Right. You know, I can't get these people all going at once. A lot of them know each other, but still, I kind of prefer the one-on-one or just me with two people for dinner where I know they're free to talk to each other. Cause then I can kind of open my ears up and really pull in some interesting things and maybe get some Research. added inspiration yeah. for the next book. Yeah. Scott Harvath, 32. There you, there you go. Wow. Wow. We'll oh, still be uh, podcasting. We'll still be covering them. Yeah. How's um Scott Harvath 24 going? It's uh, it's well underway and uh it is it is it's fun. It's fun. So, uh I'm in I'm at the halfway point with with the new Scott Harvath and my contract with Simon and & Schuster and uh as we are doing as we're recording this podcast last night we found out that uh Paramount Global has found a buyer for Simon & Schuster, a private equity group called KKR. I read uh, that in the news. They owned recorded books. They had bought recorded books and had worked with them and then sold them. So, uh, And part of the KKR team is the ex-CFO from Random House. So there's some... There's some you know, good, solid experience with the book business in KKR. And I am somebody as an artist who is doors wide open, as far as I'm concerned, to bring in tons of MBAs because publishing is not like any other business, but it is still a business. So I think when you can marry good creative people with excellent business people, you can only have success. And that's that's my uh, my deep hope and uh, firm belief that Simon & Schuster is just, these guys are going to be like accelerant on a fire. I mean, Simon nice. & Schuster is just, killing it in the publishing industry. My house, Atria and Emily Bessler Books in particular, is doing very, very yeah. well. 
probably the most successful imprint in the industry right now. Uh, one of them, if not one of them, the most successful. So yeah, so I'm excited. It'll be a new era at Simon & Schuster. Uh, we get to keep John Carp, who I love, who's the president and CEO. Uh, but I think having KKR on board is going to be really, really good for my publishing house. So I'm excited. And I'm an investor in KKR. So that's oh. kind of neat for me. I've got retirement money tied up with those men and women. I'm very, I was a big fan before they bought Simon and Schuster. More impetus to make your books even better if that's possible. That's it. I don't know that's if it's it. And one other person on the business end of things, please keep in the loops a loop. I'm sure you will. Armand Schultz. Oh, oh man. Isn't he great? Oh he's a narrator so for the books. Yeah. He's Nails he's it. so he's he does. He does such a good job. And so I've on social media, I've posted a couple of behind the scenes clips of him doing speaking parts to to camera in the studio, talking about what he liked about Deadfall and what he likes about Scott Harbath oh, and that. stuff. He's he's really cool, and he's a Broadway trained actor. And uh, when Billy Elliot came to Chicago, Armin said, "Hey, get your wife, come down to the theater, see me in the play, and then let's go out for dinner afterwards." Uh, and so we did. So it was really cool to see Scott Harvath up there playing Billy Elliot's father. That was wow. a little tough for me. Uh, the voice of I, Scott Harvath. I, I, I'll tell you one other funny story about Armin because he does television commercials too. And a couple of years ago, I was cooking breakfast and I have a TV in my kitchen. I had the TV on, but my back was to it. And all of a sudden I heard Harvath asking me how my cholesterol was. And I was like, <laughs> what? And I turned around and there's Armin with a, a, a white doctor's coat. And he's got a, he's got this, this portal up that in central park where people can walk up and automatically see their cholesterol levels. So that was kind of a, a weird thing to be cooking breakfast and hear Scott Harvath inquire about my, my house. The trolls cholesterol with all the wine and cheese and snacks. Oh, and the foie gras and all that <laughs> yeah, exactly. kind of stuff. Yeah, that little guy is bulletproof. He is he, the risotto and the, the uh, pizza, pizza Napoli. Yes, uh, and the pizza too. And the Chianti. Yeah. And the Chianti. Yeah, no, that was that was kind of fun because there are, you know, I actually researched that too. I'm like, what are people who have to go in and do office jobs and work late? What do they, did they have to bring, you know, a lunchbox with them, whatever? No, there's, there's places open that do takeout, you know, in Kiev. So that was kind of cool. And I believe that pizza Napoli, I actually think that's a real place. I, I'd have to go back and check my notes because as long as I'm not, like I, I used a bunch of the stuff in Moscow was real. There's one that's not, uh, that's not real, but oh, the, the bar with the bras, that was, there really is a bar. So there is a bar in Moscow with bras like that. So I use that as inspiration, but in the book, it is not that because I didn't want to listen. I'm not afraid some bar in Moscow is going to get upset about what's in one of my books. I got, I got bigger problems than watch that, out for probably. that gravity, that Russian. Yeah. Gravity. Yeah. The gravity. Exactly. <laughs> but there is a bar that is popular. That's got the bras hanging from the ceiling. And so, yeah, I mean, that bar does exist. I've never been there. I've heard a lot about it. But, you know, I didn't want to make it sound, I didn't want to use the real name of that bar and suggest that they're, you know, pushing out bootleg booze and stuff like that, because I don't want to hurt anybody's business. But the bras from the, and I've traveled, you know, traveling light before I did traveling light and me with a backpack, I've been to a thousand bars with bras hanging from the ceiling. And to be honest, I kind of forgot that that stuff still goes on, but it still goes on. So, yeah. That's what funny. a lovely note to end on. So we right. can actually call. I'm going to get canceled now for talking <laughs> about that. So let's call the time of death on Brad Thor's career. We've been uh, canceled a ton on this podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, about don't worry everyone who comes on gets canceled. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> the cancel cast. Well, we can't let you go unless we hear from you. How do you pronounce the Ukrainian bread? Oh, you guys are going to kill me on that uh, because I talked to a friend of mine. Uh, I, I I can't pronounce it, to be honest with right. you. Yeah, I cannot pronounce it. You know, Palinitska. Or Palinitska. It's, it's, yeah, I, I know somebody who is uh, who grew up speaking Ukrainian. So I probably should have said, you know, record it on your iPhone and send it to me. So when I get asked this question, I could actually press and you could hear it being spoken. But the fact that I had to get it spelled right, obviously, for the book, that was the most important. But that actually is real. And you see shades of that in Saving Private Ryan, where they're yelling flash thunder as a the challenge and response yeah. as they're running up on other allied soldiers. And they have to prove either I'm not I'm not a Nazi or I'm making sure you guys are not a, a bunch of Nazis that I'm running up on. So that stuff has existed for for a long, long time. So I thought that's really cool that that Ukrainian peasant bread is actually a challenge and response kind of a scenario over there. That's a Thorism right there. Yeah. Finding yeah. the real items and working them into the books. Right down to Wolverine. They were really spray painting on oh, the side on the of trucks. defeated Russian armor. Yeah. The, the These guys had cans of white spray paint and they were doing that. That's a Thorism right there. 
There you go. Well, thanks, Brad. We had a great time. Appreciate you you coming back. And we can't wait to have you for the next book and maybe even before then. All right. All the way to number 32 and beyond. So let's go. Keep it going. (laughs) Yes. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, guys. Well, guys, we we hope you enjoyed that interview and I apologize that part two, I know you're, you're dying to hear what we thought about the rest of the novel. It's going to be a little bit delayed. So we're going to put this one out first, probably depending on if we can do some shenanigans with recording the next couple of days before Mike leaves on his vacation. But yeah, so that's what's next on here. Also go ahead and start reading Blacklist. Is that the next uh, Scott Harbath book we're covering? It is. Now, we are not going to get there until December because listen to what we have to cover. <laughs> December. Between, oh, dude, my gosh. It's August. I know. But listen to what we have coming between then and now. We want to get Fade out to the people, a tribute right. to Kyle Mills. Got we want to have get Kyle fade. and Don Bentley on the podcast. We then have C- Code Red coming out. That will be on the Mitch Rap podcast. Friend of the pod, Ryan Steck, has agreed to come back and talk to us. And his new book, Lethal Range, the follow-up to Fields of Fire, is coming out. Actually, I think it came out last week from when you guys are listening to this. We've got Moscow X, David McCloskey. Like I said, we're covering Don Bentley, so we're going to go back to Target Acquired. Uh, I think that's in his Clancy series. We've got Sons of Valor 3 from Andrews and Wilson, more Friends of the Pod. Assassin's Mark coming from Ward Larson in the Assassin series, the David Slayton series. And we've got all that until we get to Blacklist back here on the Scott Harvath podcast. So, Chris, you and I are going to be busy reading this fall. Yes, busy, busy. All right, well, we have to thank our patrons, our special operator, Sherry F., our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Ben, Matt, Dawn, Peggy, Ray, Bridget, and Mark. Please subscribe, rate, and review using your favorite podcasting platform. Give us uh, that Apple rating if you want to be entered into that contest to win a signed copy. You can find us online at thrillerbot.com or on Twitter at X and Instagram at Thriller Podcast. And as always, Slava Ukraini. Heroium Slava. Slava.